As you're seated, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This morning I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like you to join me as we travel back in our memories to the days before GPS. When you wanted to go to a new city and visit a famous site, somewhere you'd never been before, how would you find it? Let's say there was a you know, brand new city, a special, big, major tourist attraction. You would get into the city and then look for signs. Inevitably, something big, there's going to be signs telling you, Disney World this way, Eiffel Tower, you know, wherever you're at, the signs will tell you how to get where you're going where to turn, which exit to take. But if you were going to that city not to see a tourist attraction, but to a friend's house, a friend who lived in that city, you probably had printed directions. You'd written out where to turn, which exits, where to stop. Everything you need to know to get there. I would suggest that many people, many of us, approach the Christian life in the first way. Looking for and driving from sign to sign. Not knowing what to do unless we see some supernatural indication of what to choose, where to live, who to spend our time with, or whatever. But what Jesus is here indicating is that we already have all that we need. And discipleship, that word that describes Christian living, is more like driving to a friend's house where you already have all you need to tell you how to get there. You don't need big signs on the street saying, John and Mary live down this road. Take this exit. You're not going to see a sign like that because you don't need a sign like that. And if you sit at an intersection waiting for a sign to tell you which way your friend lives, you'll end up going nowhere. What we see in these verses is that God wants His people, His followers, to respond in faith to what He has already shown and already given us. We don't need to wait for new or clearer or more personal revelation. No signs are coming because no signs are needed. You have what you need to follow Him in faith. 
And yet we don't. We don't always feel that we do. And like the characters in this passage, we either demand too much of God or expect too little of Him. Let's first look at the heart that demands too much. It wasn't that long ago, if you've been with us as we've journeyed through Matthew's Gospel, it wasn't long ago that we were at an earlier part and came across a story very similar to the first few verses here where the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign and Jesus says no. And then He tells them that they're evil and adulterous and then He says that they will only be given the sign of Jonah. And some people would see that repetition and think, oh, surely it's a mistake. The Bible's a human document and Matthew messed up. He put the same story twice Silly Matthew. But the Gospel writers were not sloppy. This is not human writing. This is the Holy Spirit giving these words to us. And if the Gospel writers repeated something, it's usually for a good reason. It tells us something. And it's not inconceivable that the same thing would have happened more than once in Jesus' ministry. People approaching Him and asking for some sort of evidence, some proof, some sign. Now, the first thing to note about this second occurrence that Matthew gives us of this story is the placement, the context. In the two chapters leading up to this story, as we've seen in recent weeks, Jesus fed 10,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He then walked across stormy waters to get into the boat with His disciples. He healed crowds of sick people with just a touch. He cured a woman's daughter of demon oppression. He healed many more people of blindness, lameness, and other illnesses and afflictions. And then, to to wrap it all up, He fed another large crowd of thousands of people with only seven loaves of bread. And then, verse 1, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Him, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. Do you see how ridiculous their request is? A sign from heaven. Guys, what have I been doing? What do you call all this? Jesus knows it's ridiculous and He points it out in the next few verses. Verses 2 and 3, He answered them, When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. Or as we say it today, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning. Sailors take warning. There you go. And I, I read recently the meteorological explanation for that. It's just, it's just fascinating. Uh, but but we, can, we can read the signs. Jesus says to them in verse 3, You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, Jesus is saying, Guys, it's, it's been pretty obvious what I'm doing, what I'm about, where my power comes from. There's no question I am sent here of God. And you are still missing the obvious, unmistakable signs of that. Now you might think that, why not just do one more thing, Jesus? Just one more little sign. It'll it'll shut them up. It'll convince them. Maybe they'll even be on your side. Just one miracle is all you have to do to convince them. And yet He doesn't. Verse 4, He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, he's not saying that because they seek a sign, they're an evil and adulterous generation. No, it's not seeking a sign that makes them evil and adulterous. It's because they're evil and adulterous that he will not give them a sign. The problem is not that they haven't seen a sign. 
The problem is their hearts. Even if they saw another miracle, it wouldn't matter. Their hearts are evil, unfaithful to God, and therefore, even given a sign, they do not and will not believe. I urge you to pause for a moment and examine your own heart. It's easy to say, ooh, Pharisees, Sadducees. I mean, I remember growing up, anybody else sing the song? I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. If you've grown up in the Christian tradition in the church or even just from reading the, the Gospels, Pharisees, Sadducees, these are the bad guys. Ooh, not like them. But check your own heart for a moment, okay? Just pause and consider. Are you expecting and and waiting for God to show you something He hasn't shown you yet? Are you struggling to believe or to obey or follow or commit to what God is calling you to do because He hasn't done enough in your mind to prove Himself, to show Himself? He goes on here to offer the sign of Jonah, which when he first mentioned that in Matthew 12, 40, he explained it as, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, the sign that we are given, and according to Jesus, the only sign we need is His resurrection, His death and resurrection. And yet that sign would not convince those whose hearts are predisposed, determined already not to believe, but instead to test and to judge and to refuse Jesus. I mean, how often, even in our simplest ways, do we, we put God to the test and say, well, God, I, I kind of think I know what the hard thing to do here would be, but can you just give me a sign that you really want me to do this? Can you, can you prove that, that this is what I should do? That's not how we test God. That's not what His miracles and His signs were for. The only sign we need is the sign of Jonah. That he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. The problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees was that they had not yet responded to the things they had already seen. To the feedings, the healings, the amazing miracles, the powerful speech They had not yet responded. Correction, they had responded. They would not responded in faith. They had responded with criticism, judgment, anger. And so for us, the warning here is that instead of seeking more revelation from God, instead of having a heart that demands more from God than He has said that you need in order to believe, instead of asking and waiting for Him to prove Himself to you, we must first look at how we have responded to what He has already revealed to what has already been shown to us? Have we been faithful and responded to what He's already given? What has God already done? What has He already shown you in His Word, in history? How have you responded to what He has given? Because He says it's enough. But that, like I said, that's the Pharisees and Sadducees. Obviously, they're going to miss the point. But what about the disciples? Well, yeah. The disciples did not demand too much. The disciples had, on the other hand, a heart that expects too little of God. 
Fresh off this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus uh, turns to his disciples and says, hey guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we'll get, in a little bit, we'll get to what that actually means. But for now, we need to look at how the disciples heard that and how they responded to it and the problems that created. Because, you know, the disciples were running low on supplies. Uh, In Mark's version of this, he says they just had one loaf of bread to split among the 12, 13, however many there were of them. And you can almost picture them together, the disciples. Thomas, pass me some bread. I didn't bring it. I thought Philip was going to bring the bread. No, Judas has the money. He's going to bring the bread. And they, they begin discussing among themselves this practical, real problem that they're going to be hungry. And so when Jesus then, without being a part of that conversation, simply says, hey guys, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have to try to figure out what he means. Verse 7, they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. That's why he said, watch out for the leaven. Leaven is something that you put in bread, and they forgot to bring bread, so maybe Jesus is angry that they didn't bring bread. If it wasn't so sad, the misunderstanding, it would would be really funny, actually. And, And Jesus, aware of their discussion, seeing that they're missing the point, goes on to respond in verses 8 through 10, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Twice in the past, I don't know, maybe week or so, Jesus had fed thousands of people with just a few handfuls of bread. And the disciples themselves had to collect the leftovers. There were more leftovers than there was bread to begin with. And they are thinking that it's a problem that they have only one loaf for a dozen people. Can you sense why Jesus would be frustrated and feel like he needed to address this misunderstanding? Guys, I just just multiplied bread to feed thousands of people. You've got more than enough with me in the boat. Do you really think a bread shortage is your real problem? It's not. So what's happening here is that Jesus had to set aside the main lesson, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, in order to address another problem. If the Pharisees and Sadducees had demanded too much of Jesus, his disciples were expecting too little of him. Here is the man who fed thousands, who walked on water before their very eyes, who made the blind to see and the lame to walk, and many other things besides. And they're worried about having to share a loaf of bread. They do not yet understand that God, as Peter writes in Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. The Pharisees demanded too much because of their evil hearts. The disciples, in verse 8, expected too little because they had little faith. And sometimes I think we do that out of a concern that, that we don't want to be guilty of testing God or asking something inappropriate of Him. Or, or we have this view of, of God's sovereignty that is, is so great. You know, as we just sang, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. If He is doing that, then, then how dare I expect that He's going to listen to anything I have to suggest or pray for? 
His plans are up here. Why would I? And, and because our view of God's power and sovereignty is so great, our boldness and expectation in prayer and our childlike trust in our Heavenly Father gets down here. We forget that He is a great and mighty God who calls us to pray and by His own character gives us reason to pray. The psalmist reminds us with these words in Psalm 62, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to You, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Power belongs to God. The power that fed multitudes and walked across the waters. Had they forgotten what Jesus could do? Had they forgotten that, that a bread shortage was not going to stop Him? But not only power, also steadfast love. He is not only able to care for His children, He is loving and He desires to take care of us and to meet our needs. And so the repeated word in much of Scripture is remember, remember, remember. He's even saying it here. Do you remember what happened with the bread? Do you remember what happened with the crowds? Did you forget what I am capable of? Do you forget who it is you're talking to? Remember what the Lord has done. Is anything too hard for Him? The prophet Jeremiah confesses in Jeremiah 32, Ah, Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and Your outstretched arm. There is nothing too difficult or too wonderful for You. This is where you say amen. There is nothing, nothing that He can't do. Why, are, why do we set the bar of our expectations down here? When the God given to us in Scripture is up here. There's nothing He can't do. Remember that He has given His life in your place. Do you think He would then withhold anything that you needed? God has given many, many signs to His people. Signs of deliverance and salvation. Signs of power and love. It makes no sense to sit in the boat and fret over a loaf of bread. Not when we remember who He is. So we are warned not to have a heart that demands too much of God and not to have a heart that expects too little of God. And then we see that what Jesus wants to teach His disciples is to have instead a heart that is filled with the Word of God. Having dealt with that misunderstanding over the bread and what Jesus can do with bread, Jesus then returns to His original point in verse 11. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, he doesn't explain it any further. That's, that's interesting to me. You know, the first time He said it, the disciples are like, um, okay, He must be talking about our bread. And then Jesus says, are you serious? How could you honestly think I'm talking about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He just repeats himself. And yet, because he's reminded them that bread's not a problem, they get it this time. But, but it's understandable that they didn't understand the first time. And here's why. It, the disciples lived in a culture where food, what you ate and where your food came from, was not just a matter of, of preference or health. It was a matter of holiness. The, the whole dietary laws of the Old Testament informed them as to what foods were, were sinful to consume and which ones were, were okay to consume. 
What food, was this food allowed? Had, had it been correctly prepared, there were rules on how food was to be cooked. And certain ways of preparation were not allowed for God's people in these days. Had the food been touched by a sinner before it reached your lips, that could defile you. Had the food been offered to an idol, there were, there were whole meat markets you couldn't go to because the animal had originally been sacrificed to an idol. So the question, is it a sin to eat this? That's a fair question, actually. So maybe they hear Jesus' warning and think, we forgot, to bre- we forgot bread, but Jesus is saying, don't get bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because, okay, he's saying that, that there's something wrong with their bread. It's sinful to eat. But then Jesus you know, reminded them, bread's not the issue here, guys. It's about something else. In verse 12, they, they understand that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's review some basic principles of baking, and please indulge me, those that know more about baking than I do. Um, most of my understanding of baking came from the Scripture. So, um, Leaven is something that you mix into bread, like yeast, to make it rise, so you don't have just kind of the flat, crunchy stuff. And, and the last time we heard Jesus talking about leaven was in Matthew 13, 33. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And as Randy uh, took us through that passage a few weeks ago, um, he, he showed us that, that that word three measures could be three ginormous measures. It's, it's three big vats of flour. And you mix a little bit of leaven. And when you mix it in, what does leaven do? It's not like a raisin that, you know, you, you throw a handful of raisins in and in the end there's just like a few raisins spread throughout. It spreads, doesn't it? It fills. It permeates. Not only that, it alters the chemical properties of what it inhabits and changes things, makes them different. And so when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, He's saying that that the message, the values, the hopes, the way of the kingdom of God spreads all throughout everything it touches. Your whole life, every area of you is to be permeated, transformed, chemically altered, so to speak, by the message of the kingdom. And not just you, but wherever the kingdom is preached and practiced, it has this altering power, just like leaven does. The kingdom of God spreads out and changes all that you are, all that you think, all that you believe, all that you do. That's what leaven does. It spreads throughout the dough. And so Jesus warns His disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees because He wants them to beware of their teaching. We should pause and look at the significance of Jesus comparing these two things. Teaching and leaven. Listening to someone's teaching may seem like a very simple and innocent thing. I'm just listening. I'm just curious. I just want to know what they're saying. But it's more than that. Because teaching gets in you. And like leaven, it spreads. And it takes root. And it begins to change you. I just think of a friend I had years and years ago. Matt. 
Matt was a man who labored at my side in the cause of the gospel. We went out and, and shared the gospel together and led people to Christ. He led Bible studies. He was a bold witness for the gospel. And in his uh, work for the kingdom, at some point, he, he met some people that were a part of a cult that was having meetings near campus. And, and, and you know, out of a desire to be informed and know what was going on and out of curiosity, he, he went to go sit and listen to their weekly teachings. He's just listening. Just wanted to know. And he went back and he listened some more. And he listened some more. And before long, he had been completely consumed, had sold everything and given it to the cult leader and had been completely consumed by this cult. It had changed everything. Just listening to a little teaching. But like leaven, it spreads. It changes you. We're, we're seeing the same thing and it's all throughout the news now. You know, how, how people are radicalized. You, know, you start by... You know, YouTube recommends a video and you watch and you listen to it. Oh, that's kind of weird. And then it, you follow another link to a similar video and you're like, whoa, that's crazy talk. That's insane. Who would ever believe that? And two weeks later, you're like, this is, this is life changing. You're just listening to the teaching. And like leaven, it spreads. And as it spreads, it starts to change how you think, what you believe, and ultimately who you are. So what Jesus is saying here. When he says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's not saying, eh, they say weird stuff. He's saying, don't be like them. Because if you listen to their teaching, you will become like them. Because the goal of any teaching, good or bad, true or false, is not just to inform you. I don't stand up here week after week and teach Sunday school class, and we don't have Bible studies. and We, we don't do teaching to make you a more informed person. That's not our goal. That may happen, but that is on the road of the greater goal, which is to change you, to transform you, in biblical language, to disciple you, to make you a disciple. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were not one group. Okay? We mentioned their names together, but they were actually two very different groups. The Pharisees were the uh, religious legalists who were very interested in the overthrow of the current government and the restoration of power to God's people. If you listen to their teaching, it sends you down that path. The Sadducees were, were wealthier, aristocratic. They were friends of the government and in favor of, of building good relationships with the government. They wanted transformation through political change. They were generally religious skeptics. They accepted some of the belief, but not others. And if you follow their teachings, it will leaven you and change you in a very different direction. And Jesus was saying, look, whoever you listen to, that's who you become. You will become like them. And he's warning his disciples and us today to be very careful in considering what leavens you, what fills your mind, what teaching is changing you and making you a different type of person. You know, are you listening to what, what the people around you are saying about, about what your body should look like or about how you should talk to other people or about what's most important, about how your money should be used and saved and invested and spent or about what's, what needs to go on in the halls of power? Is that the, the teaching that is leavening your mind and spreading throughout you and, and making you into a, a certain type of person? The Pharisees and Sadducees asked for signs. Why? Because their hearts were filled with something else. Not with the desire to obey God's word through Jesus, but with something that had filled them and made them into something different. 
The disciples had the signs and missed them because their hearts were distracted and worried about bread. The heart that Jesus wants us to have is a heart that is leavened by, filled by the Word of God. When He had first given His Word to the people of Israel, He commanded them in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6-9, through These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, fill yourself like leaven fills bread dough. Not like raisins or chocolate chips or whatever, where you can still pick out a few here and there. But like leaven, which fills and permeates and changes it all. Do that with the Word of God. With God's good promises to you. Let them spread in you and shape you. The alternative is not neutrality. The alternative is not that nothing will fill you. Because something else will take its place. Celebrity gossip, political debate, the pursuit of wealth, fear about the future, something, some kind of teaching is going to fill you and shape you and come to define you. So beware. Watch and beware of the leaven of any who are not gods. But not only that, the best way to keep the bad leaven out of your life is to make sure there's no room for it. So instead, fill your heart and your mind with the good teaching of God's Word. That is His Word to those who seek a sign or miss the signs. The Word is you have all that you need to follow faithfully. Whether you tend to be more like the Pharisees and Sadducees and your heart keeps asking God for more, God, show me proof. God, give me a sign. His answer to you is, you already have all that you need. You've already been given all the sign you need, all the direction you need. He has given you Himself. Jesus Christ entered human history, gave His life and rose again. There can be no greater sign than that of His power, His love, His purposes. You have all you need. Perhaps you're more like the disciples. You know what God has done. Maybe you have even witnessed in your own life the power of God at work. But you still find yourself looking at one measly loaf of bread. You're trying to figure out what you are going to do about it. Because it's your problem. And you don't want to bother God with your problems. You're on your own. And you've forgotten who's in the boat with you. You're living like your battery is on 1%. And therefore, there's no point in trying to do anything because you have no power. And so you do nothing. When all the while, the one who made you made all things and conquered death and has promised you so much is right there. He's right there, ready and willing. His word to you is the same. You have everything you need. If for whatever reason you don't feel that or don't believe it, it's still true. If your life doesn't look like it's empowered by the one who does far more abundantly than all we ask or think, then you maybe have been soaking too long in the leaven of false teaching. Drink deep again of God's Word. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And church, as you do so, as your heart is filled with His good Word, you will arise from your unbelief and enter into the glorious work of the kingdom of God. 
He has given every sign you need. He has given you all you need according to His promises at work in us. Join me as we thank Him for that and move forward in light of those great promises. We thank You, Heavenly Father, that You know our need. And though we don't understand, and though at times we feel we need more, or at times we forget how much we have, You are patient with us. Fill our minds and our hearts and our whole lives indeed with Your Word. With a Word that changes and transforms and shapes us in Your image. We pray this according to the powerful name of Jesus.